Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. For Muslims, it's coming, but it's shrouded in mystery as the Quran has it, verily the knowledge of the hour is with God alone. For Christians, it's straightforwardly the return of Christ. For Jews, it's the coming of the true Messiah. The notion of apocalypse, the end of time, eschatology, is deeply embedded in the Abrahamic faiths and it's our subject this week. It's not an anxiety shared by everyone, however. Take the astronomer royal Martin Rees. With the sense of the longevity he gets from the study of cosmology, he feels inoculated from end-of-time thinking altogether. Here he is speaking on the Wolf Institute podcast series, Encounter. There's no reason whatever to think of humans as being the culmination, because we're the outcome of four billion years of dominion selection, starting the first life on Earth. But we know that our sun has five or six billion years ahead, so we're less than halfway through in time. But end-of-time thinking is widespread and has implications beyond the religious. A political scientist might see it as a metaphor for how an oppressed society expresses its hope for release. A psychologist might see it as a metaphor, albeit a rather dramatic one, for the end of time that we all face as individuals. But we've called this programme Hope and Fear, and with me to discuss these matters are Dr Mansour Ali, Senior Lecturer in Islamic Studies at the University of Cardiff, with a particular interest in practical theology, which he says means making sense of the world we live in. We need that. And Dr Beth Phillips, Public Engagement Fellow here at the Wolf Institute. Beth's upcoming book goes under the formidable title Apocalyptic Theopolitics. Beth, how does our need for hope relate to our well-developed sense of the end of time? 
Well, I think in most cases, and this is both in religious eschatologies, religious doctrines about where time is going and how it will end, but also in secular eschatologies as well, because there are many secular eschatologies, theories about where the trajectory of time is going on earth and where that will end up. These often have to do with making sense of where we are in time right now, making sense of what the meaning of human history is and where it's headed to, and and therefore what we have to hope for in the future. I think in Christian circles, there have been lots of conversations and people who are critical of Christian eschatology, both within and outside of Christianity. The criticism has been that it prevents social transformation. It prevents um, trying to make the world a more uh, just and peaceful and livable place because you have this belief in the in the hereafter. Um, and I would say we certainly can give many instances in which Christian eschatology has created social inertia. That's definitely true. However, I think that it's usually when Christian eschatology is looked on as here's a description of how things are going to happen. Here's, here's a future narrative. This is how it's going to play out. When that's what all eschatology is, then it can create inertia. If eschatology is more teleological in, in that it looks towards the telos, the ultimate goal and meaning of all things, that it's not just a chronology of what's going to happen, but why the world exists, what it exists for, and what its ultimate end is, not just end as in finish, but end as in fulfillment, then it creates motivation. It creates the impetus for social transformation because we want to begin living in the light now of the ultimate purpose of our existence with one another. Mansour, many listeners will have come to the notion of eschatology through Christian and perhaps Jewish thought. Tell us about the features of Islam, because there's a lot of misconceptions out there as well, aren't there? Thank you very much, Ed. Islamic eschatology relates to an understanding of creation itself. In Arabic, this is called mabda wa ma'ad, beginning and the end. And the beginning of human being is in the Islamic tradition, that in the Quran, we find that God created everything with his word, be, and so it was, with the exception of the human being. When it came to the creation of Adam, God created Adam with his own hands without associating any kind of anthropomorphism to God. Um, But it means that God was involved in the creative purpose and God breathed in Adam his spirit. And this is why all of humanity has got a bit of the divine in them. And it is this yearning, this spirit of God that we have which yearns to go back to God. And this is the Akhirah, the return to God. And this is very beautifully captured by Arumi in his magnum opus, the Mathnawi, where the very opening couplets, he says, listen to the flute as it laments the pain of separation. So here there's a flute, which was a part of a reed plant. The reed plant was cut off and now turned into a flute. And that the flute is singing a song and is crying and saying that I'm lamenting. People don't understand my lament, but I'm actually yearning to go back to my origins. 
You're romanticizing about something which most of us don't want to happen. I don't want to return. You know, I don't want to be the one falling off the cliff. Um, as much as the Almighty may look after me afterwards, I, I'm pretty happy in this life. So aren't we in danger of romanticizing this end time or am I just being the cynic? Well, there are many versions of Christian eschatology that are um, that are not very romantic. They involve, you know, Armageddon and battles and plagues and basically everything unraveling at the end of time, um, followed by Christ returning to judge everyone. Um, so, so that bit of it isn't isn't very romantic. It it tends to be quite cataclysmic and bracing. Now, not all Christians ascribe to that view of eschatology, but whether you do or not, um, what then follows after that is the more utopian vision of a new world, a new heaven and earth in which uh, there is peace and health and prosperity. And so there's sort of both sides in Christian eschatology to how the story ends. I think Islamic eschatology is similar to that. You know, we do have the Book of Revelation type end of time in Islamic, you know, eschatology. And in Muslim eschatology, Prophet Jesus will actually come back and he will kill the Dajjal and the kingdom of God, if you want to use a Christian term, there will be peace on earth. Muslim eschatology also says that Jesus will come back and he will break the cross. He will kill the the swine, the pigs, and he will get married and he will also have children. Okay, And then there will be a moment of peace. In a way, the vision of the end of time is a kind of metaphor for the vision of the end of oppression. So the relationship between eschatology and oppression is a really interesting one because um, I think it's safe to say it can cut either way. So on the one hand, because the visions of what happens ultimately after the end of this period of human history, when there is a new heaven and a new earth, all oppression will cease. Now, what does that mean for our life here and now? And for some people, that means, well, that's what we're striving towards. That's what we want. That's the ultimate reality that we want to participate in now as much as we can. So on the one hand, if you believe that God's ultimate kingdom is a kingdom of of justice, where there is no oppression, where there is peace, um, then that's how we want to live now. On the other hand, those same visions have often been used by Christians to oppress people, to say, um, basically, stay in your place now, because this is how it has to be now, but there's a future coming where you'll be free, where there will be justice, where there will be peace, and that can be used um, to keep things from changing in the here and now. We've been using the term apocalyptic, apocalypse, what's it mean? Well, apocalypse is a genre of of text, um, and these are texts that exist in, in Jewish scripture and Christian scripture. There are also lots of Jewish and Christian um, apocalypses that didn't make it into scripture. These are texts in which a human seer is given a vision of of an otherworldly or supernatural reality, but it always has something to do with human temporal existence. And very often in popular terms, when you say apocalypse, people just think cataclysm. People just think that means something really bad is going to happen. And that's only because in these texts, something bad happens. But what happens that's bad is actually good because the bad things that happen are to 
oppressive powers. So these texts were written by oppressed communities in moments uh, of real crisis. And what they show is someone being given a vision that the people who are in charge right now and oppressing people do not have the final word. And they're not actually the ones who are really in control. God is in control. And here's a vision of what that looks like. And that means that these powers will be toppled. These powers will be destroyed. And, and so all of that kind of toppling and destruction that we think of as apocalypse, actually, if we think of the meaning of the word, which is unveiling, it, it's a revelation of what is actually the true reality beyond the fleeting realities of humans who claim to have ultimate power behind and beyond all of that is, is the ultimate power of God. In the Jewish understanding, of, say, of the Messiah, Messiism, there's a bit of a cynicism within Judaism that whenever somebody claims to be the Messiah, disaster follows. I mean, Jesus wasn't the only Jew who claimed to be the Messiah from a Jewish perspective, but the temple was destroyed. Then there was the Bar Kokhba revolt in the second century, mass destruction of the land of Israel, Palestine at that time. There was Shabbatite's fee in the 17th century and tens of thousands of Jews converted to Islam. You know, um, Rabbi Schneerson in the late 20th century, which hits community of the Chabad between those who believed he was Messiah and, and, and returning and those who, who don't. So there's, there's a sort of a, a kind of a, a bit of a, a fear factor actually in the Jewish world about the eschaton. How does that play out in, in, in Islam, Mansur? I think as far as oppression is concerned, Islam in its very nature was a religion that came in 7th century Arabia to get rid of the oppressions, you know, to get rid of the heavy taxation, to get rid of the usury, to get rid of people oppressing the orphans and, and usurping their money. So I think Islam in itself is a metaphor for the end of oppression. And when we look into the Quran, we find that immediately after creating the world, God created the balance or the scale. And then in the Quran, it is mentioned that everything, the sun and the moon are all orbiting and doing their things according to a balance. And that basically means that um, oppression, which is imbalance, is not only a crime against humanity, rather it is a crime against divine creation and the purpose of creation itself. In order to understand Islamic eschatology and the end of time, we need to also kind of read that in tandem with Islamic cosmology and the creation and the beginning of time. Yes, so it's the beginning and the end, if you like. That's something that's come out in, in what you've said, Mansour. And I know also in Christianity, uh, Alpha and Omega, you know, the sense of the beginning and the end. I'm intrigued if within Islam, like there certainly exists within Christianity and Judaism, um, the more radical element of our faith, it's often tied up with people who are almost uh, wanting to prompt the eschaton, wanting to prompt the end of time, or wanting to build the temple, in rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. You know, that's where the the sort of extreme elements, if I can put it like that, within the Jewish and Christian faith sit. Does eschatology play a role within that radical element in Islam, or is the radical element somewhat different than the Jewish and Christian? Well, the end of time is about hope, but it's also quite fearful as well because of the fact that everybody is going to be judged and as human beings, we make mistakes. However, we do find that people and extremists, they do use symbols and imagery from the Islamic eschatology, you know, virgin cherubs in paradise, you know, if you go and die and become a martyr for the sake of God, they exploit those. Our secular listeners will be heartened that we'll be moving on to some of the secular eschatologies in the second half of this show.
This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Beth Phillips and Mansour Ali. We're talking about hope and fear, the sense of an ending that we all share. Given the problems posed by apocalyptic thinking that we talked about in the first half of the programme, can secular thinking, Marxism, science and so on, be said to have cornered the market in hope? It's an interesting question because I think there have been times in the not-too-distant past where that was much more true than it is now. In the 1960s, the uh, Christian theologian Jürgen Moltmann uh, wrote his book, The Theology of Hope, and one of the points that he was making was that Christian theologians, academic theologians, had stopped paying attention to eschatology and had therefore stopped paying attention to the centrality of hope in Christianity um, and that people were getting their hope from Marxism in particular. And he took on a lot of the critiques and principles of Marxism, but of course Marxism is a completely atheistic um, eschatology, and it is a kind of eschatology. But you know, now we're in a time where uh, we have not seen a successful embodiment of a Marxist utopia. Um, and so, again, you know, I think we would still see a, a lot of meaning in the critiques of Marxism and how it questions capitalism. But it sort of doesn't give many people that same kind of hope that we've figured out a way to bring a utopia on Earth. Likewise with science, you know, for a long time, many people were able to view science as this kind of unbroken trajectory of, of progress and improvement and therefore hope. Um, and what science is doing for us now is, you know, sort of revealing all of the mistakes that we've made and how much we've messed things up and actually what a profound crisis we're in with climate change. And although science will definitely be a part of the solutions, if indeed we're able to find solutions, um, what science is giving us now is fear more than hope. We have to make huge changes fast. Um, and so there's a sense in which the more secular sources of hope have become a bit less hopeful, I think, in recent decades. Not because they're wrong, but because of what, what has been revealed in the working out of things. I can see all the scientists coming to my door and banging it down uh, and complaining about that, Beth. I think that modern Muslim thinkers have not been as influenced by Marxist, Freudian, or kind of or scientific understanding rather than scientific, as the way that fellow colleagues from Christianity and Judaism, you know, still Muslims, they tether their hope to this idea of religion and eschatology, and they find that is the, the only source of comfort. So, for example, as far as science is concerned, you know, science can tell us what happens when we boil water. But science can never tell us why we need to boil the water. It's those kind of the existential questions which other disciplines such as poetry and literature can get into. People in the Muslim community still tether their hope to science. Even in bioethics, this is the field that I'm working with, even in things like bioethics when it comes to end of life and when it comes to palliative care, it's this concern about the hereafter that impacts the way we do our bioethics. So, for example, is brain death, is it death or is it not death? You know, majority of the scholars will basically say, well, you know, you, you can change the definition whichever way you want. But the person still breathing, there's blood being pumped, there's somatic activities, you know, there's still 
hair growing, the touch is warm, and therefore the soul or the spirit is still residing. It's still these religious ideas impact the way that we even do things like, you know, medicine and, and ethics. I think more Christian bioethicists have tended to agree with medical definitions of death. And I think that part of that is that some Christian thinkers tend to focus more on directives to ease and end suffering than on directives to extend and protect life at all costs. But all bioethicists are weighing up the balance between the two. I think we are living in times where these issues like death, which was the prerogative, you know, defining death uh, and ascertaining whether somebody has died or not was part and function of the family. On the deathbed, the family members will be around, the priest and the local community will be around. They are the ones that will decide, okay, somebody is dead. Now there's no breathing. The soul has returned. Now we're looking at something where death is medicalized. It's the eerie kind of, flat line, the green line, that basically tells us that somebody is dead. I mean, in my research on on organ donation and brain death, I've kind of realized that it's also a turf war of who has got the power of definition. So the religious scholars, Muslims, Christians, Jews, argue that no, death is a process and death is something related to the, you know, the other world. And therefore, being people of religion, we should be the ones defining it. Whereas the you know, the medics are saying, well, actually, no, this is part of the human biological functions and that's our raiment and we should be defining it. So there's a turf war going on. Maybe you have to wait for the end time for that, Mansour. I've written a, an article which is it's called Soul Searching and it's basically on this particular topic. Where do we locate our soul? I mean, some Muslim scholars will say that, okay, because of brain death, we need to rehouse the soul from the heart to the brain and basically say that when the when the brain is dead or the brain stem is dead, that's the moment when the soul has returned. What's your view, and I'm, I'm throwing this sort of uh, curveball in, in, in terms of reincarnation? I know that's something that is um, fundamental to the Dharmic faiths and not so much the Abrahamic faiths, but is, is there anything there? So as far as reincarnation is concerned, there is the journey of the soul. So like Christianity in Islam, we basically say intakala. Intakala literally means to pass on. The body has passed on and gone to what we call the dimension of the graves, which is like um, isthmus. The soul goes up to the heavens and then comes back to the grave and then starts the uh, life of the grave. Afterwards, you know, there's bodily resurrection. We don't actually know the nature of that bodily resurrection. Would it be the same body? Would it be a different body? But there is a bodily resurrection. And this also comes up in organ donation. So many people say that, oh, I don't want to donate my organs because I don't want to be resurrected organless in front of God. So normally we do not believe in this idea of reincarnation, but there is a hadith or a uh, saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that people who are martyrs who die fighting for the cause of God, until the judgment day, their souls will reside in the bodies of green birds in paradise and they will eat and drink uh, from paradise. And uh, jihadi literature and extremist literature, they bank on that. And they kind of exploit that and say, well, before everybody else goes to paradise, if you are a martyr for the sake of God, then now you will have entry into paradise in the shape of a green bird. 
there's so many similarities between Christian and, and Muslim eschatology, and the, the centrality of the bodily resurrection is is one of those that's really important. And that does sort of mitigate against any idea of reincarnation. But similarly, for some Christian eschatologies, there is this element of purgatory, that there may be an in-between state. And for Christians who believe in purgatory or some version of that, then there are continuing opportunities for humans to to repent and to change and to become uh, more the people that they should have been uh, in their life on earth. And so it's not it's not reincarnation, but it is another chance, another step. See, Beth, in Islamic eschatology, this world is, is what we call Darul Imtihan. This world is the world of examination test. Once a person dies, then that's it. You know, <laughs> there is no kind of re- retesting or retaking of the exam. So whatever you sow in this world, that's what you are going to reap. Many Christians would interpret it that way as well. Many Christians believe there's one moment of judgment and that's it. Before we come to a close, I want to return to the astronomer royal Martin Rees, who said in the clip we opened with that the sense of longevity he gets from his discipline inoculates him from the end of time thinking that we've been talking about and gives him great hope and that mankind or humanity um, has the space to continue developing. I mean, do you, do you feel at ease with what he said? Is that something you'd agree with, Beth? There was a, an amazing um, public art exhibit recently, called, I think it was called Our Place in Space. There was like a, a scale model of the solar system that you could walk or cycle along. It ended up being, I think, 10 kilometers from Earth to Jupiter so that you could get an idea of the scale. And there were scale models of each planet along the way. And it just left you with this incredible sense of how tiny Earth is that was meant to replicate what astronauts feel when they leave Earth and look back on it and get a sense of how how tiny it is. And there's a sense in which um, he must have meant that same thing, that when you can step back and take the big historical or the big scientific view, you get a different perspective. But I think that actually in its best versions, Christian eschatology does something similar because the sovereignty of God is the big picture. It is, it's the reality of a, of a creator God who holds all things. There's a very beautiful saying of the Prophet Muhammad who says that if one of you is planting a tree and the last hour was to come, then carrying on planting, meaning that if you did good in this world, Okay, then you don't need to fear the end of time. You don't need to fear anything. You know, you carry on doing. But the metaphor can also be kind of extended in the, in the fact that planting something is basically giving you life. So this idea that Martin Rees talks about scientific development and longevity on the earth, there, there is a, another saying of the Prophet Muhammad who says that when, when the children of Adam dies, then everything stops and everything goes to their grave other than three things. Number one is knowledge. Right. Knowledge is held in very high status. Knowledge that they have uh, left behind and people can benefit from that. Children, pious children who can pray for them after they die. And also any kind of acts of public good or public service uh, that they've done. In these things, humanity still carries on. Muslim scholars or advocates of organ donation basically says with organ donation, the gift of life, humanity still carries on. But again, like Beth said, in Islam, the ultimate truth and the ultimate reality is God. We haven't reached the end of time, 
but we have reached the end of this podcast. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guests, Beth Phillips and Mansour Ali. If you enjoyed the show, and I hope you did, you might want to browse our archive of podcasts, which includes an interesting discussion called Apocalypse Now. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some new guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.